Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Local Japan Podcast. I literally just got back from this workshop that I did with a fellow Kobe resident. She is an Ikebana teacher and also has her own、um, Buddhist school, sort of like a daycare or maybe after school program for, for young kids to learn the arts. And she also teaches Ikebana there. We have partnered together to offer these workshops to tourists and to other Japanese residents who are interested in learning. And so we just had our very first program this morning. Yeah, it was the first time to actually have a customer book organically just through searching on TripAdvisor. And we also have it on VA.com. You know, not, not knowing who this person was, they signed up and they joined the workshop and we ran it for two and a half hours. It turned out to be great. And I took the back seat as a supporting role to help translate. It feels really great from a business perspective to have that legitimate transaction occur. It feels like, a, like a, you know, one of those small victories in life. So I'm really happy about that. And hopefully the collaboration will continue to grow. It's one of the many activities I'm involved in, along with the carpentry work that I do part time as well. I'll actually link it. In the show notes, so that you can check out the contents of the workshop and recommend it to friends who are traveling to Japan. And if you yourself are in Japan or traveling to Japan, you know,、uh, if you sign up, that would be a blast and I would love to meet you. Today on the podcast, we have an interview. My guest is Nicholas Boys Smith, who is The founder of Create Streets, which is a consulting firm in the United Kingdom, specifically based in London, but they have projects throughout the country for supporting local governments, architects, and other important actors in creating beautiful streets and beautiful towns. It was such a great pleasure to be able to speak to him, as you'll see in the podcast, because he has his work. And his writings have deeply influenced my thinking and my life as a graduate student. So, you'll learn about that today. And I think I might actually cover his report that he wrote for the UK government on the podcast. I think that would be quite interesting to explain the different policy recommendations and the research conducted behind the report. Which is titled The Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. I feel like only the English could come up with a, a name and a commission like this.、Uh, <laughs> but I, I loved the report and I also loved our discussion today.、Uh, I just quickly wanted to go through three things that I really appreciated about Mr. Boy Smith. The first thing is that. When he first started this work in trying to bring beauty forward in the cityscapes across the UK, he started as a resident. He was simply a citizen minding his own business, but felt a sense of urgency or felt a need to express his discomforts with his surroundings. And I think his story. Is an example of the democratic principle applied. In his current work now, I feel like he's a, a kind of channel for local residents to, to voice their concerns 
into a kind of neighborhood that they want to live in. Which brings me to my second point of what I really appreciated about the discussion and about him is that he always brought the discussion back to pragmatic policy. In the world of politics and legislation, there are many different jobs that need to be done and many different roles to play. Um, One role is to create political will and to rally the people and the electorate behind a cause. And that requires charisma, leadership, often from a figurehead. It requires political instinct, and it requires a public-facing voice. And this kind of work deals more in the realm of ideas, and it's important. But the other side of legislation is the actual legislation, where you have to write down the law, and you have to know how the law functions. And in the case of policy, you need to know pragmatically what are the effects of a policy, where is the money going, how is this functioning. And no matter how much talent you have on the theatrical side of things, if you can't put together a pragmatic policy, it's um, you're going down a bad road. And so he, what I felt in the discussion today was that he... He was that pragmatic voice asking, how can we solve the problem in front of us? A lot of times we hear in political discussions, uh, criticisms about certain leaders who promise things, but then they don't follow through, right? And we as voters, we often get mad and we call them hypocrites or two-faced. And I think a lot of times the reason why we say these things is because those political leaders have the talent to rally a cause, but maybe don't have the expertise to come up with compromises with other policymakers to actually f- create some kind of plan. And so we get mad at those people for failing to follow through. And so what Nicholas Boyce Smith brings to the table is the understanding of the work that is required to follow through. And the last thing that I really enjoyed about Him was that he's not a technically trained architect or engineer. And it reminds me of the book I reviewed a few podcasts ago of Yoshihiro Takeshita, who wrote Japanese Country Style. He was not a classically trained architect. He was self-taught, but he has produced some of the most important and beautiful Kominka restorations across Japan. And the reason why I... I have a soft spot for people who are not technically trained is because I don't think experts alone should finish the job because I think they need to be in dialogue with the people that are going to be affected by their work. In episode 31 of the podcast, I spoke with Haida Imai and we talked about the idea of city making or the idea of walking the streets and the idea of you have to walk the streets and talk to people in order to kind of understand what they want. And as someone who's detached from the technical training of architecture, Nicholas Boy Smith embodies that ideal. There's actually a book I'm reading now called The Measure and Construction of the Japanese House. And I read a passage that I'll read now that relates to the discussion. Uh, And I think I'm going to, I'll definitely uh, cover this book on the podcast soon. And he's talking about the gap that exists between 
the physical structure of a building, the construction of it, and the philosophical and artistic aspect of the building that humans live in. And he says that there is an urgent need for basic intellectual education. And he says specifically that it is the architect that needs to undergo this basic intellectual education. He says, quote, In the case of building, this task has to be performed by those who actually carry the social responsibility in matters of the physical environment, the architects. And it is due in no small part to either the architect's ignorance of the cultural mission of architecture or to their inertness in matters of public opinion that the level of culture characterized by the psychological relationship of man to the man-made environment is at such an all-time low. And I, I agree with that statement, especially living in Japan and you see all these square boxes everywhere and these pointy glass and metal concrete buildings. Um, and you just feel the inhumanity of it all. Um, I have very strong opinions of all, of all this, of course. Um, and we get into that with Nicholas Boy Smith today, and he, he offers some really, really good insights. Uh, the last thing I'll say is he also has a book, which he will discuss today. It's called No Free Parking, and I've also included a link in the description below so that you can buy the book, which is out on paperback. One more thing for the listeners that I think you'll love. So... Is well, Nicholas Boy Smith is a Londoner. He's got that wonderful accent. Uh, but I've, because he's in this uh, London community of builders, I've been exploring the community online. I've stumbled upon this thing called the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, which is a British nonprofit, which you can find at spab.org.uk, based off of the name of the organization i think you can guess what it's all about but the thing that i really love is that in addition to supporting large important cultural buildings they also provide advice to homeowners so these are especially homeowners in probably more rural parts of the uk who who own old homes for example maybe thatched roof homes or just old victorian homes and they offer some advice on how to maintain your old building. Uh, so if you go onto their website, you can go to the advice tab and check on their knowledge base. And they even, okay, well, it's not really relevant for people in Japan, but they even have a phone number where you can chat with an experiment experienced team member. But anyways, in the knowledge base, you can scroll and check out different uh, blogs that they have on energy efficiency and insulation and uh, materials to use on how to get rid of mold and how to insulate your house. So, of course, this is for the, the British context, but I, I think it could be useful for Japanese homeowners because uh, I think some principles are universal and it never hurts to keep learning. So I thought that was a pretty cool thing to share to the local Japan listeners. If you enjoy the work I am doing, you can support by subscribing for free on your podcast player, Spotify, Apple, Google, whichever podcast player you use. And if you subscribe to Substack, which is free, that's great. You can get an email from me every time I post an episode. And optionally, you can subscribe for five bucks a month or 40 bucks a year. 
which I deeply appreciate and helps the podcast. Also, Christmas is coming up. So Substack also has this feature where you can gift a subscription to somebody. So if you know somebody who likes the podcast and if you want to support me, you can gift them a subscription. And with that, please enjoy my discussion with Mr. Nicholas Boys-Smith. Nicholas Boys-Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to out of your busy schedule to come speak with me. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'm very look, much looking forward to our conversation, and thank you yeah. very, very much for for inviting me. Oh, of course. I think I'm I'm just really excited because uh, I'll be able to introduce you and your work to the people who listen to this podcast who have similar interests. So I'm really excited about that. Who um, does listen to your podcast? Who am I talking to when we when we when we speak together? Who who who? Where where are they, and what do they do? Are they are they in Japan, or are they or are they globally around the world? So they're definitely. What's the word? Um, uh, what's, what is the word that you use for English speaker? Uh, Anglophone. Uh, Anglophone. They're Anglophones, yeah. yeah. They're all Anglophones, more, more or less. There's actually a lot of friends of mine who listen from Switzerland that I went to school with. Um, most people are in the United States. And then there's a lot of expats here in Japan who listen to. So I think that's mostly so who that's we... I'm, so, I'm, so I'm talking to, to, to expats in Japan, Swiss, Americans, other <laughs> odds and sods. Brilliant. Well, yeah. I very much look forward to this. Yeah, but I think... What most people have in common is either a love for Japan or a love for architecture or a mix of the two. And so I think that's who we're going to be talking to. Um, I think the way I'll start this is by just telling you a really quick story about me. Not not because I want to share my story, but because I think it's informative for what you do. Um, I think you'll, and, and then afterwards, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But just the kind of my trajectory in my life has been, um, so I'm an American born and raised in California. And I did. I, was, I did assume you weren't uh, born and raised in Japan from your accent, but I, I, did, I didn't like to make that assumption. <laughs> yeah, but I do have Japanese ancestry, yeah. and so growing up, I always had this nostalgia for Japan of this very interesting, very cool country that my ancestors came from, and so I always grew up with that. And after I graduated from university, I decided I want to go to Japan to kind of rediscover my roots and I had this vision of traditional beautiful Japan in my mind and when I went to Japan uh, for my job which was just being an English teacher uh, I was placed in Kyoto and so I was very excited because Kyoto is the cultural capital historic capital of Japan and there's always these visions of ancient architecture and I ended up in the city for my first day and we were dropped off at Kyoto Station. And if you want to just quickly Google a photo of Google Station, or sorry, Google of Kyoto Station. Okay, um, I shall do that. I don't, have, I don't have it in my head. I shall do it now. Yeah. Let's have a look. It was very disrupting to my expectations. Reality. Ah, yes. I can, I can see that's not traditional Japanese. No. Good heavens. A, no, that's quite assertive. Reality it's hit mem- me. Memorable is, the, is, yes. is a good example. It's memorable, in a, not entirely in a good way. And it, it really shook me <laughs> and uh, ever since that moment and also exploring the city because i lived there for three years um i realized that the, the japan that i had in my head is not the one that exists today and from that moment on i had this spark in my life to like i want to revive the architecture that once existed um and that is disappearing 
because I think it's very valuable. It's beautiful, but uh, we're at a moment of crisis. And so I went, I left Japan. I went to this to Switzerland to study graduate in graduate school. And there I actually wrote my thesis on natural landscapes and the built environment. And, but the thing that, that was very informative for me is the country itself is gorgeous, but the school that I went to was an international relations school. And the building that the school was in is this very, very modern glass metal concrete building that has yep. no soul, no character, doesn't adhere to the Swiss locality at all. And it's sort of this international style that could have been built in Singapore or in Frankfurt or anywhere. That was really informative to me to understand the difference between local governance and what made Swiss cities and Swiss towns so beautiful versus this international style without any identity. Learn those lessons and now I'm back in Japan trying to restore old houses. And that's kind of my passion project for now. So I just wanted to give you that arc and, uh, and I would be very interested to hear your thoughts on all that. Gosh, well, thank you very much. What a fascinating uh, story. Um, where to start? I mean, the, it, it's interesting just listening to the, the, the words you use. I mean, you were clearly, and I don't want to make, make assumptions about your sort of, you know, your psychological state and, you know, all, all your motivations moving, moving back to Japan. But clearly, you know, to use your own words, you were aware of your ancestry. You were looking for a, uh, a certain version of Japan, Japan you'd, Perhaps you were seeking, uh, perhaps you were seeking a sense of home, and it's interesting that your link you're making, uh, as you tell the story of you know where you've decided where to live and where to, to spend your you know your your brief existence on this earth. It's it's very much about places that you know have a sense of what they are, and and your disappointment in Switzerland wasn't that it wasn't wasn't more Japanese, and your disappointment in Japan wasn't that it was more wasn't Swiss enough. It was that they weren't that weren't their own things. And, and talking about Koita Station or. Um, uh, or your school in, in Switzerland, which, which, by the way, which city was it in Switzerland that you were in? in Geneva. In Geneva, of course. That's a, weirdly, that's a city I know relatively well. I lived in Geneva for eighteen months. Okay. Um, uh, I, I sort of gently disagree. It's not. I think the modernist buildings have no character. They do have a character. It's just not a character that is really associated with one place. There's a, there's a strength to that, and you can understand why in the period after World War II, which is a, which actually, of course, is a history which has lots of relevance to Japan and to the physical history of Japan's buildings, for obvious reasons, um, less so for Switzerland. But you can understand why 70, 80 years ago, there was a architectural movement, um, perhaps to reject place. To, you know, after World War I, World War II, mass destruction of European, Asian and, and other cities, you know, a sense that that was a path that wasn't going in the direction people wanted to. And they wanted to set out a uh, a vision of life that that had much less focus on place. I think that you know that was their stated objective. I think that's that's not being un- unfair to them. I, th- I think what we now know, you know, we've had sort of two generations for people to fall in love with towns and cities that don't have a strong sense of what they are, or perhaps I should more accurately say of where they are, where they come from, as well as where they're going to. And so far, the wider public keep not falling in love with that and they've, you know, they've had two generations to do it um, and we see we'll probably come back to what Create Streets is and does but you know we, we do lots of work with community groups up and down the country mainly in the UK but also a little bit beyond um, it's refracted different ways it's put differently it's said differently but we come time after time workshop after workshop online poll or real life poll after poll 
conversation after conversation, we come up with the variance on the same theme, which is that people want their places, their neighborhoods, their parishes, their villages, their towns, their streets, the high streets, to have a sense of what they are, of where they are, and that any change to it, which most people are accepting of, people sometimes can be a bit resistant, but they want change that rhymes, that sort of feels like it's a this place rather than no place, of, of somewhere rather than anywhere. Um, and, you know, you really hear that refracted in different voices in different ways, but it's that same theme, which I think, if I understand you correctly, is is, is what, what, you're, um, what you're reflecting. And, you know, why do we go on holiday? Well, we to get away from work, but but also actually to 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 dive into and enjoy and swim in the differences of place between Geneva and Zurich, or you know not that far away Milan. You know they're they're, they're you know they're, they're not that physically far away from each other, and yet they're completely different because they're refracting a different you know a different history, a different culture, slightly different languages, sometimes different variants on the same religion or entirely different religions. That's that's the joy of place, I, I think. So um, I. Uh, so I recognise your story. That's that's probably putting it rather pompously, but I, I, I you know, you're, what you say makes sense, um, and it's fascinating, and it's a fascinating arc from uh, California to Japan to Geneva and and then back again. Yeah. What was your favourite place in Geneva? In in Geneva, like the city itself, um... or was it out in the countryside? Maybe it was the countryside. Yeah, I love the countryside. And what's amazing about Geneva because it is it is sort of it's a proper traditional city in the sense that it is very city-like, very quickly you're out in, you're out into the countryside. I mean, almost in minutes. It's, it is, it is, yeah, you know, for me as a London dweller, it's quite, um, it's quite stunning how quickly you can go from real city straight into, uh, you know, up a mountain. No, it's incredible. I think in terms of the city itself, my favorite part is of course the old town. There's this, um, shout out to Gelato Mania. There's this, uh, ice cream shop in the city center, uh, next to the, next to the old, beautiful church and so uh, I, I enjoyed that area you know very walkable very beautiful steeped in history but then I guess my second favorite place would be yes it would be out in the countryside I did a little uh, stint in a farm oh wow in Geneva yeah. or a little little bit outside of Geneva but uh, it's, it was with um, WOOF the worldwide organization for organic farming or yeah opportunities for organic farming where you can stay at a place for free in exchange for you working on an organic farm for like four hours a day. Yeah, so I, I did that. Yeah, I did that. I had some fun and went to a really beautiful little villa in the Geneva countryside. I, uh, so I, 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 um, I was very struck how um, in Geneva, uh, all the historic buildings were in impeccable condition. Obviously, it's a, it's a rich country, but it wasn't just that they had the money. Actually, their mindset was very much that old buildings should be kept looking almost new, in fact, pretty much looking new. Um, and the moment you... F- Cross the border, which you you, know, you do almost all the time. You know, going to going to the shops, into France. Immediately, you could tell. And France is not a poor country, but the the old buildings were not sort of kept polished and primed to quite the same degree of, you know, late twentieth century, early twenty first century sort of pristineness as they were in Geneva. My, I think the museum I liked best, or sort of the thing I place I like most visit, there's a museum. I might get the name wrong here. It's just from memory. I think it was called Maison Tavel or Travel Tavel. I think. Uh, which was one of the very few buildings in Geneva where you could see the inside of a building being historic as well as the outside. Um, and it was a museum, I can't remember the full history, but essentially of, you know, of a historic uh, Geneva house, Genevan house, Genevois, I should say, in the, in the middle of the town. And up at the top in the attic, I think, um, they had a, mu- a, a model 
of the city. Of I the think city. from memory in the 17th century, from memory. I, I, you know, watchers should check that date. I'm not guaranteeing that date. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I've that. been there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And you could just, it made you, it's like being an architect, a godlike, sort of looking out over the city. Uh, absolutely fascinating place. Yeah, actually, if you go across the border, yeah, to, to Animas, it's very, very shocking how different the infrastructure becomes. You yep. can tell that it's not Switzerland anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Even just a yeah. few kilometers away. Yeah. Oh, almost, almost immediately, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. So we have, we have Geneva in common. And again, because what, what makes Geneva so lovely is you've got the city and then you've got the lake. So some of the we know what the patterns are that make for successful and prosperous places. I, you know, and a view over water is certainly one of them. Yeah, I think my experience from Japan to Switzerland um, and seeing how different the Swiss developed their cities versus the Japanese um, was astounding. And so that also was it kind of really lit a fire in me to try to understand and figure out why these things are the way they are and you said something interesting about uh the post-war period where there was this desire to reject place and i think that for sure is very true of japan in the sense that they just wanted to get over the war they had this deep need to move on to redevelop and it worked i mean their their economy is very powerful the the country's totally recovered and so that was their prerogative in their society and in their policy in the 1940s and 1950s. I guess taking that idea, I wanted to pick your brain about your your uh, your knowledge because you are a historian of London. You wrote a book called um, No Free Parking, right? Well done. It's Someone's a, read it. That's marvelous. Always good to yes. know. I'll tell my mother. <laughs> the History of London. Well, History of London so streets. It's not, it's not a whole History of London. London that would be, it's not quite that grand. Right, right. Uh, could you tell us about the, the history of London streets in the perspective of maybe like these new buildings that have come up in recent years? Um, like I'm thinking of the walkie-talkie, of those more modern buildings. And what do people think about them today in London? What's the general consensus about these new modern skyscrapers? Okay, Um well, I, I will answer that question. I'm going to say one thing first, if I may, just to sort of put it in context. So, um, you know, again, slightly reflecting the, the story you're telling about Japan, um, the history of London post-war, I think, has parallel rejections of the traditional city pattern, the traditional uh, weave of streets and the way we move around. Um, I think it was part of it was definitely the, the sense of wanting, I, I think understandably, to build a brave new world after war. Uh, obviously, London had also been bombed quite badly. Um, so there was a, you know, a lot of the development post-war. Uh, it wasn't big, shiny glass, but it was it was big lump and concrete and, uh, uh, and, and prefab blocks, which very much rejected the traditional urban realm and street pattern of London. Uh, I think there was initially hope about that, um, but not for long. Um, and it quite quickly became hard. And London at the time, I should say, was, was emptying out. So whereas the London population has been growing for the last, um, uh, I think since the mid-1980s, I think it started growing again. But for 40 years, the London population was declining, partly because people were leaving the city, partly actually as a, as a, you know, as a, as a function, as a deliberate government policy. Um, so in a way that now seems difficult to imagine in modern London, uh, in post-war London in the 50s, 60s, 70s, people had choice about where they lived and prices were nothing vaguely comparable to what they are now and quite a lot of the of the post-war blocks became to use the the, the phrase that we used in contemporary times hard to let like people just wouldn't move into them 
and there are lots of famous examples. The most notorious was probably Thamesmead, uh, which is a big, a big estate on the in East London, but there were, there were many others. Now, to come, what I think happened uh, from the 1970s onwards and really picked up pace in the 1980s was a gradual rejection of that pattern of post-war building, if you like, rejecting the historic city. And that's changed a bit, and you know, modernism probably got a bit more of a fillip in the in the two thousands and in, in, in the Blair years. Um, but what I think is importantly different about, and now I'm finally answering your question, Jared, about the uh, you know, the big shiny blocks done in the last uh, say 15, 20 years, and there have been a lot done. Um, you know, not just things like the walkie-talkie and and and, and, um, and the gherkin, but also whole new areas near Paddington or Nine Elms uh, near Vauxhall. Is that on the whole, most of them, and I would, I, I've got my criticisms of them quite a lot actually, but on the whole, the, the spatial planning around them is not as as bad as it was post-war. So they have got slightly better principles of plugging into the city. That's not to say there aren't challenges and constraints. I mean, famously, as you probably know, uh, the walkie-talkie until they uh, reduced its glare was you know was frying eggs on cars and causing heat points. Oh, wow. All of them, again, they try and manage it, but all of them create you know, wind tunnels and turbulent effects. They all overshadow the city. You know, London is obviously not in a in a subtropical zone. It's quite got a high latitude. So it does create winds and, and unpleasant subclimatic effects. Um, whereas the post-war towers were disproportionately, not entirely, were disproportionately uh, social housing um, in, their, uh, in their aims. Uh, much of the more modern towers, the ones in the city, uh, uh, have been largely commercial. Uh, the ones in places like Nine Elms have been far more likely to be private housing. There's a huge unmet demand for housing. So, you know, they can sell and they're, they're, they tend to have very high service charges. Um, there has been perhaps less than the last couple of years, actually, since Brexit, but certainly five, six years ago, uh, huge debate. It's still there, perhaps rumbling a little bit less in the wider public consciousness, but there's been huge debate about the, the gentrification um, of different parts of London. And as some of the post-war estates, which ridiculously, after only 50 or 60 years life, are deemed as being, in many cases correctly deemed, as being you know, difficult to maintain as they are. So they're tending to get regenerated you know, within one human lifetime, which is just ridiculous. No, no building should, should last so, so briefly, I think. Um, uh, that has led to claims of social cleansing and to you know, very fractious debates uh, about who should live in the new towers being created. Not So it's not just debates about what they look like and their effect on the city those have certainly happened and i've played a part in those but but also about who gets to live in them and how so it, it has been a at times a toxic certainly a fractious debate over the last 10 years i'd say in, in modern london but a little bit different from the parallel debates that happened a generation or two generations earlier post-war i hope that's yeah. of some interest but that's that's <laughs> i said i promise i'd get to your answer in the end but i thought i should give it a little yes. bit of a, a bit of historical context before i dived in yes yeah i think what's what I got out of that is that what's very interesting about buildings is that they are expressions of humans and they are also expressions of humans in that very specific history. Yes, um, and di- different. I mean, you know, there are clear themes in how humans respond to buildings and places. And, you know, your, his, your personal history and cultural background is different to mine and mine is different to my wife's who comes from France, is different to this, is different to that. Um but nevertheless, there are patterns in how we respond which are relatively predictable. But clearly, there is an overlay of culture and of our own personal experiences. And we can all imbue, you know, depending on our own life story, different buildings and different places with, with feelings and sensations and emotions that might be peculiar to us or at any rate unique to us or you know, sort of um, 
but you know, but but for all, for all of us, places are emotional, and your your story shared that very powerfully. You know, and we're all in a way seeking home and places that we can feel at home in and that feel homely and that we can relax and rest in. We all, nearly all of us, you know, unless you're some psychopaths, have have that need in our lives. Yeah, when I talk about my reaction to Kyoto Station, that is definitely a very personal story, and it's a very personal reaction. I don't think all Japanese people feel the same way. Some people maybe feel similar. Some are might maybe indifferent. I mean, the, so I mean, I've just I've just looked at it. I claim no expertise on Kota Station. I'm happy for anything I say on Kota Station to be to be to be disproven or to be wrong. But you know, on the whole, people find uh, spaces with sort of you know, big, sharp things coming at them, or that are very angular or assertive. On the whole, or that are you know not human scaled. On the whole, people find those less settling and comforting. And they can work. You know, uh, some of the great Victorian stations, great cathedrals. You could hardly call them uh, human scaled. But if they're uplifting. Uh, coherent, spiritual, filled with emotional, or places that are very big can nevertheless fill, fill with wonder. I mean, if you go into a, a Saint Chapelle in, in in central Paris, it's not it's not human scale, but my God, it's wonderful. I mean, I've 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 sat or sat, I've stood by the little door that the tourists come out as they come into the space from the from the crypt below, and I think all of the sort of oh, I don't know, half a dozen or so, perhaps a bit more people I watch come out, they all went because because their eyes are lifted upwards in wonder because it is wonderful. So in terms of just the walkie-talkie and the gherkin, for example, uh, do you know what the general consensus is about it in London um, from an aesthetic point of view? Like, would people have the same reaction that I had to the Kyoto station? Uh, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, there must be some polling on that. I've not seen it specifically on those uh, buildings that I can recall off the top of my head. I, I would speculate, um, but this is a speculation, that the gherkin will be infinitely more popular uh, than the walkie-talkie. I, mean, I think, personally, the Gherkin is quite an elegant building. I think it's nicely rounded. I think it's nicely featured. I think, bluntly, it fits nicely into to, to modern London. I mean, the city of London, as you probably know, has it still has its medieval street pattern. A lot of the buildings, well, almost none of the buildings in it are medieval. They're mainly now a mix of 19th century, 20th century, and with a good smattering now of 21st. Um, it was controversial when it was built because a building uh, was very badly damaged but not destroyed by a terrorist bomb and it was then demolished to build the gherkin so there was there was controversy over that i think that is now long since forgotten by most londoners in fact probably never known um i would say it, it fits into london quite nicely um and um it quite quickly it was adopted um by the evening standard which is london's sort of you know newspaper on its masthead so quite quickly it was added just was one of the um Sort of symbols of London alongside, you know, Tower of London and and uh, Tower Bridge and things like that. Um, I think again, this is a speculation. I can't remember any statistics off the top of my head, but I would speculate that the walkie-talkie will be far less popular. I don't think it's been added to Evening Standard Master. I might have got that wrong. I better check. Um, you better check before this goes out, or I might make a fool of myself. Um, it, it's just a more, it's a less um, biomorphic, a less pleasing, a more lumpen and assertive shape. I mean, it literally sort of leers over the city. I mean, it is, It is. I think it's fair to say, it's a greedy building. It, it, it greedily takes up airspace. And it, it's a very, you know, it's, it's an honour. I mean, lots of architects like things, to be honest. I would say it is an honest building in that it is a greedy building, making the most value it can. Uh, and, and and you see that. Um, we used it, actually, in the, um, in the report I co-authored for the British government a few years ago. Uh, we were very looking, which is called the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission Report, uh, Living with Beauty. Uh, we were very clear that we did not want to put in and we didn't 
uh, pictures of people's homes, which we were sort of criticising as ugly or, or, or inappropriate. That felt to be not, not the right thing to do. But we thought we should choose a few buildings which we deemed to be ugly, and uh, we chose the walkie-talkie as one of them. So uh, I, that's what I think. But uh, And I would imagine that is the common view. But as I say, I don't actually know that. Yeah, I actually will talk to you about that report later. It's I, I love it. Thank you. Um, yes. So when I was in Geneva, I took a couple trips to London, and I love the city. I think... You, it was really interesting. You said that it maintains the medieval street patterns. And I felt that when I was in London. It felt like a very large international, it's the capital of the country, but it was very walkable. Uh, you, you felt like each neighborhood had a, there was, it was a sense of neighbor neighborliness, if, that, if that's a word. It is. So I, I really, it is in the English I speak. <laughs> I, <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I, I think it's a, wonderful city um so i guess one question i have is about your work at create streets which is the company that you founded and in the website of of create streets you say that our approach is uh, our approach to master planning is centered around creating homes not units and streets not roads places where people are healthy and happy and communities can thrive and that, that, that sounds that sounds like us. Yes, I reckon I recognize yes. that. I'm pleased to say. And um, it's the the company you focus on uh, making streets livable and walkable. Um, maybe what you can introduce what the, what the enterprise is. But uh, specifically, I wanted to ask you a question about if you had a specific story or a specific memory that frustrated you about urban planning in the past <laughs> and then like what led you to create this organization then? um thank you well, we've got, to make these changes thank you we've got two questions i might take the second one first because i guess that leads more organically into the first yes. of, of what we do and i should say create streets is two organizations actually we have a social enterprise and we have an associated charity the create streets foundation but i'll, I'll loop i'll loop back to those uh, so yes, I, I do have a version of your story of you know, going to Japan and being disappointed. Though I didn't have to go quite so far to get disappointed. So I live in um, I live in South London. Um, I live on a, a road called the Camberwell New Road, which is one of the roads created in the eighteen twenties as they started to improve the connectivity out of uh, the city of London, the city of Westminster. Um, and South London is quite a quite an interesting. I think all of it's interesting, but South London I find particularly interesting, probably because I grew up there. But um, in that you've got um, you've got Georgian or Victorian streets and bits of suburbs sort of you know, spidering out from the centre and then linking up to um, historic villages like Camberwell, um, Peckham, um, and then you've got uh, bits quite a lot between that was um, developed more more latterly. So quite a lot of market farming, I you know growing food for Londoners, often using uh, dung from London as the manure. Uh, you know, existed well into the 19th century and then got built up uh, more in the late 19th or even into the early 20th century. So you've got a, quite an interesting you know, mesh of, um, uh, of different types of building and different types of neighbourhood within quite a short uh, distance from the centre. And then South London got quite badly bombed in World War II. So it wasn't just that it got hit by the Blitz. Um, in the second Blitz, which was the V1 and the V2 flying bombs and rockets in 1944 and 1945, they disproportionately hit South London. So you've got quite a few sort of gaps in the urban fabric, which were created by high explosives, you know, 80 years ago. Um, and I was driving past uh, uh, a bit of post-war London. We were talking about post-war estates earlier, um, called the Aylesbury Estate, 
um, on my way to to the B and Q um, DIY store about fifteen, no, probably less than about thirteen years ago to buy pot plants and things for my little garden uh, with my then very young son. Uh, and I noticed they were starting to knock down part of the Ellsbury estate. Again, it comes back to what we were saying earlier, how ridiculous it is that a, a building that is less than 50 or 60 years old is is uh, is being pulled down. Um, and I was very curious about what they were replacing it with. And so I Googled the replacement um, and at a very superficial level was sort of <laughs> very disappointed. I thought, that doesn't seem much better. And I thought the, you know, my understanding had been, I think, I think correctly, that the consensus was that a lot of the post-war development patterns had not been very good. And so I was very curious that what I saw didn't seem to be much better. And I just started to scratching at it. And I then went to look at part of, I think it was phase 1A that had already been built or just come out of the ground. And um, although it sort of had a brick veneer on the on the, on the the breeze blocks and the and concrete flame frame, uh, a lot of the same mistakes seemed to be to be made as had been made 50 or 60 years previously. So it was not very nice to look at. It had confused backs and fronts. Uh, if you know, if we were both there together, you could stand on my shoulder and I could have got you up onto the um, uh, open access corridor on the first floor. It was parking on the ground floor. It was just lots of just things that didn't make me, or I would now say with confidence, most people sort of actively aspire to, to live or be there. Um, and so I started just getting curious. In, I'd, actually, I'd always been curious in architecture and towns and cities. It just had been a, if like, had been a latent interest rather than one I, I hadn't come out as an urbanist. Um, and I, I went to speak to someone who'd been involved in putting the master plan together. And at the time, actually, at the time I was just come back from living in Geneva. I thought maybe I still was living in Geneva, actually. Uh, no, I must have just come back. And um, I asked this guy very basic. And when, when I don't understand something, I try and ask quite basic questions. And so I just asked this guy, well, I basically asked him, why are we building this? You know, uh, and I asked him, where are people happy? What type of places do people like? Where do they want to be? Why? Because um, these seem to be quite important questions if you're going to start rebuilding large chunks of London. And it wasn't just that he couldn't answer my question, which he, he certainly couldn't. It was that he very clearly thought I was a, either a fool or naive, I think probably both, um, for asking such questions. And, you know, long story short, that pissed me off. So I just, just started reading more and more about it and getting more and more fascinated and I think one might could fairly say obsessed about it um, and increasingly came to the view that the process of uh, architecture education, planning and regulation and the consequences on the economics of the development market were just not leading to places people flourish in. And I, you know, I would very much stick to that view. Um, so that, you know, that, that's my version of your story. And I then started, my hobby had been writing think tank papers about aspects of um, public policy. So I started writing because it was what I knew how to do a think tank paper about this, looking at how policy should change, and very much actually realising it wasn't very partisan, hoping actually to publish it with both a centre-right and a centre-left think tank, uh, which I didn't manage to do, but that was my aspiration. Um, uh, and when we published that, well, I guess to two things, um, when we published it, it did lead to a sort of flash flood of publicity, so we were sort of you know all over the British press. So we clearly sort of scratched at something important, but all of the political class and pretty much all of the political debate, and certainly the public policy debate, certainly when I started, didn't recognise the nature of the places that we create as something that was worthy of high-level political discussion uh, or about thoughts about you know, public investment in the, in the way that I thought it did. So I tried to change that. Um, so that was one thing that I think we, we sort of opened a... I was going to say a wound. That's probably the wrong... That's definitely the wrong image. Um, yeah, we, we, we opened a, a pot that needed opening because it had been shut and it was worthy of debate. 
Um, and then the second thing was, and my dearest and oldest friend, when he read my first draft of this, he said, uh, forgive me, I'm about to use a rude word, Jared. Um, he said, you lucky bastard, you found what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And it was one of those sort of kachung moments uh, when I realized he was clearly right. So I had to do a deal with my wife and you know, give up my job, which was, well, it was quite, you know, it was quite um, thought provoking. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, 12, 10 or 12 years on, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm still here. <laughs> so that's so that's the story. Um, and then to answer your second, to answer your first question, second. So what is Create Street? So we're a social enterprise. What, what that means is that you know uh, we obviously do need to make money to you know, to be able to pay the rent and uh, pay salaries and uh, you know, do what we do. Uh, but if you like, we exist for a purpose rather than existing for you know, shareholder returns per se. Nothing wrong with shareholder returns. Um, and our view is that if we create and steward places that are humane, readily walkable, beautiful. Uh, finely textured and tra- not traditional necessarily in every in every sense, but certainly with a sense of traditional street pattern, and that are interesting and enjoyable to spend time in. Uh, that that's better for people, that it's better for um, societies and communities, leads to more sustainable development patterns, and actually ultimately leads to more value for developers. So you know, it's a it's a win win win, and that's a we we try and do that. We we would say we research led rather than. Um, design-led we've got a team however of uh, architects master planners you know researchers and we we work with um, community groups neighborhood groups landowners councils anyone who work with us within reason to try and both create that to change the policy debate and then and then to make it happen and our exciting new change is well not new change but new, new sort of um, uh, venture is we have now started partly based from our office here in south london but um also uh, from a school uh, in, in the West Country, which are moving into education. Because as we, as we start, hopefully, to change a little bit the British planning system to put a f- greater focus on creating lovable places that people enjoy being in, um, what I think we're quite quickly realising is that that creates requirements of planners and architects and master planners, which I don't think are fully at the moment met by the education system. And so, obviously, we hopefully will influence the education system. But I think... We, we don't want to wait. We're going to get going. And we, we've started sort of doing our own training as well, in, either from our office here in London or running our first summer school uh, this summer. So that was probably a longer answer than you wanted. But they, there you go. That's what we do. I love that story of how you had your previous job and then you switched and now you're here and then you published the uh, building, beautiful building better commission report. Um, so I, guess, I don't know how many years later, but it, probably never expected that, that this would have happened in your life. Uh, yeah, yes, I think I think certainly if you'd asked me when I was twenty, what was I going to do? This was certainly not on the on the list. Uh, I'm I'm very lucky, man. I've, I've sort of found what I think I was, you know, for better or for worse, put here to do, um, and uh, you know, it's very it's very enjoyable actually to, to 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 know your purpose. Our purpose is very clear, and it's very sort of clarifying, and and and, and seems I, I hope seems worthwhile. I, I hope we're doing good. I think I think we are. I think so too. Thank you. Uh, so the Create Streets, the the projects that you work on, is, I'm assuming that a lot of your work is in London, but do you do work throughout the whole country? Actually, um, interestingly, our work is increasingly not in London. So certainly when we started, our work was almost exclusive London. And certainly my first paper was not exclusively, but it was very London focused. It wasn't quite 100%. Um, and certainly a lot of our early projects were London based. Um, right now, our, yeah, our projects are literally across the country. So uh, we've... Um, uh, done projects in Scotland. We've got a project up in Cumbria. We're about to kick off a project in Cumbria, which is up in the far uh, northwest of England. And we've done projects, you know, d- down to down to Devon and Cornwall. So you know, we we do the, the full full range. Um, and what we always say 
is the best way to bring us in is as early as possible. So sometimes neighbourhood groups get in touch with us um, when something's just been granted planning permission. I've been given regulatory uh, uh, approval to build, uh, asking us to help them stop it. Um, and we sort of say two things. Well, one, it's too late. Um, two, actually, our job isn't to help you stop things happening. Our job is to help make things better. So we, we don't argue against buildings or developments. We might argue for something better instead, but we, our, our case is always um, we've got to be in love with the future. Um, that doesn't mean you reject the past. You know, what we create for the future needs to be in communion with the past and the present and the future. It won't be the same as the past, but if we reject and throw away, to use a Christopher Alexander concept, if we, if we just reject all the patterns of development over the last millennia, as I'm afraid I think you know, some of the extremes of post-war development dramatically show, we will create places that are less good for humans. Um, and it's very dangerous to get overly seduced by technology. I mean, technology is a marvellous thing. I'm, I'm pro-technology. We're using technology right now. Um, but if you redesign your cities completely around the car, or, and this is the risk right now, I think it's coming quite fast, if we redesign our cities entirely around the driverless car, we will commit huge crimes against our own happiness and well-being. I'm sitting next to the conference quite recently, well, actually a couple of years ago now, um, to a chap, an academic at Cambridge, who was, I think, seriously, I don't think he was joking, was saying that for streets to work, he may have said roads, with driverless cars, we would have to prevent pedestrians, um, which is, I mean, it's uh, he's a nice man, I'm sure, and well-intentioned, but is, is deranged as a concept. Um, you know, so, you know, the, 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 the harm we might do to our own civic life, I think, is, is perpetual. So, you know, the battle will never end. I would love to talk about the, the Living with Beauty report because uh, it really encompasses all of these ideas in a very easy-to-read, accessible, and a very profound way, I think. Um, and it came out in January 2020. Yes, just before, so just before COVID swept yes, over us all. Exactly. Like a, like a month before. And I think the report is incredible. And it's, it's a very recent production. I mean, it just happened a couple of years ago. And so I hope I can do it. Just my tiny little part here in, on the podcast and help to spread these ideas because I think that they need to be spread. Um, so, in fact, it was um, I loved it so much that, let's see, I started my graduate studies in 2019 and I had to write a thesis in 2021 so I incorporated many of, my, of your ideas from the report into my thesis Gosh, for, my, thank you. for my dissertation. That's um, lovely to hear. Thank I, you my, very much for, for, letting, for letting me know. Yes. And so we'll, we'll get into the, the meat of the, of the report. But first, I wanted to ask a, just a selfish personal question, which was, uh, what was it like working with Sir Roger Scruton? Uh, first, I guess the way you can answer the question is uh, just tell people who might not know who he is, um, maybe just briefly explain who he is and why he's so important. And then, uh, yeah, I would love to just know how it was like working with him and then producing the report with him. Uh, thank you. So, I mean, uh, let me say, so, so Roger Scruton, who, who died just, uh, uh, just, just before we published, actually, in, in uh, very early January um, uh, 2020, uh, was a, uh, I think it's fair to say, a very influential and important uh in, obviously, Anglophone English conservative philosopher um, uh, who uh, was a very important figure in the broader 
cultural rediscovery of the right, um, I think probably predominant in the 1980s and 90s. I won't even try and list all his books. I mean, you know, the, the, prolific. Yes, <laughs> just, uh, alarmingly fast uh, writer, a polymath, I think it's fair to say. He also composed music and wrote across a, a broad range of um, of subjects. One of his um, subjects was architecture and urbanism, come back to that in a moment, but he also wrote about music and sex and the countryside and you know uh, a whole range of things i'm, I'm certainly not um uh, not competent to to, to, to opine on uh, he was initially appointed as chair and i was one of the commissioners uh, so i should say one but so i should say one thing before i go into the story of the of, of the building better building beautiful commission uh, certainly my view um the case for good traditional urbanism and architecture and places does not need to be purely conservative. I think there's a conservative variant of it. I think actually there's a there, there can be a leftist. I think there is a leftist variant of it as well. I think there are different ways of of, of having the debate. It's partly a matter of linguistics, but I think it's also a matter of uh, your route to, to getting there as well. So um, although by temperament I am uh, a conservative, I think it's probably fair to say, uh, you know, I'm very careful in the work Create Streets does, that it is uh, it, we work with politicians of, of all parties, or certainly most parties, um, so I should just I should put that preface in then. I think it's that's important to say because I think when the government asked uh, Sir Roger to chair the commission, which they did in late 2018, uh, it was immediately incredibly controversial um, in the broader design and development industry and sort of commentary. Out, particularly, I think it's probably fair to say amongst architects and planners who were very very critical. Um, and now to come back to your question. Um, you know, the process of working with him, first as one of the commissioners and then as co-chair, I'll come back to why in a moment, uh, was actually ultimately in- incredibly uplifting um, and inspiring. And we worked incredibly hard, as did all the commissioners and all the advisors, I think so, uh, to try and craft a report uh, that would speak to the, we thought, quite profound, important things that needed to be said about how we live. Uh, but would also have um, specific and workable policy hooks that our yeah. our client in inverted commas, like the government, uh, you know, could respond to in a, in a meaningful way. And we tried to frame the conversation in a way that yes, the government could respond to, but actually also the industry could could appreciate and uh, take on board. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it was. Um, it was a very uplifting experience, actually. I mean, Roger, I mean, as, as you probably know, or certainly some of your readers or, or viewers might know, he was, there was a very I mean, was an outrageous um, interview with him published about halfway through, a bit more, about a third of the way through, which misquoted very assertively and dishonorably and selectively some of the things he'd said, basically to make it sound like an attack on the Chinese, which it wasn't. Uh, he then got fired. I then got appointed as interim commissioner when he was subsequently rightly exonerated because it became clear that the the, uh, the interview had been deeply misleading. Uh, he was reappointed and we then served as co-commissioners uh, together uh, for the uh, for the rest of the report. But by then he was ill um, and we uh, worked jolly hard actually to get the, to write the report. We, we wrote a lot of it together in his, uh, uh, his farm in Wiltshire and, um, uh, you, 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 you said it was beautifully written, and, and uh, I think probably he takes more of the credit for that than I do, and I should say that very clearly. I probably focused a bit more on the policy hooks, and he probably fo- focused a bit more on the, the first bit, and we then sort of swapped over, and he, he improved the writing of, uh, of my bit, and I hopefully just made sure there were no contradictions with mine and made a few little modest suggestions. 
Um, and it was very, very satisfying that when we published, I think rather to a surprise, uh, you know, pretty much all designers and developers, so the industry as well as government, you know, welcomed the report. Um, uh, and I'm just, uh, I'm just going to remind myself. So Alain de Botton uh, wrote, this is a truly fabulous piece of work, serious chance of changing how this country looks in the years to come. Something monumentous is within reach, thanks to this document. And now the job is to move the machine a few inches in the right direction, and then beauty will have a real chance to turn into a living reality. Um, and I think we have changed. I mean, we, there are a whole bunch of policy changes, which are very English-specific, which I, I won't go into unless you want me to. But um, both on the left and on the right, comes back to what I was saying earlier, uh, it has now, I think we've changed the nature of the discussion. So the English planning system now seeks to create beautiful and sustainable places. I think that will, I mean, there's a reasonable chance, I think, if the polls are correct, of a change of government uh, next year. That will, I'm pretty sure, survive any change of government. Um, in his speech to the Labour Party conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sir Keir Starber, who's the leader of the Labour Party here in the UK, who's, again, if the polls are correct, quite likely to be uh, the next Prime Minister, he, he spoke about Labour's aim to create beautiful cities and prosperous towns. And then in some of the policy that was you know, shared with newspapers, a lot of it was quite aligned to what we'd been making a case for in that report, and indeed with, uh, I would argue, some of the direction of current government policy. So, uh, you know, I... Famous last words, I might be uh, kidding myself, uh, but I think we have moved the dial. And I think the nature of public debate and the, the way the English planning system is going, clearly lots of one would still change, uh, lots of one would still like to do, you know, work's never done. But um, uh, I think it's making easier for neighbourhoods to insist that new development rhymes with what's, al- what's already there. Yeah, I think one thing I appreciate about Sir Roger Scruton is he is... He's absolutely a conservative, but he's a philosopher first. And so when he, before he approaches policy, which is always complicated because. Um, policy's fiddly. Policy's fiddly. Yeah. Policy's not clean. The, you have to deal with no, intricate, irritating little things that are there. So it's not a, you know, it's not a, you never have a simple answer really on policy. Or rarely. Right. Yeah. The devil's always in the details. And, um, but one thing I really enjoyed about him is I think in recent years, politically on the right, it's been increasingly uh, common in, in the rhetoric to to sort of dismiss uh, climate as a, a tertiary policy. Um, but Roger Scrutiny was really interesting because he's, I mean, he's for sure a conservative, but he, he came about it from this perspective of stewardship and this perspective of uh, nature conservation. And he kind of, you know, broke away from other people and said, like, no, it's actually quite important that we. Well, have I think he'd always said that. I, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not. Yeah. I, I obviously, I've read quite a few of his books. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to sort of opine with total confidence on on the over of his writing. But uh, you know, that theme expressed through different words at different times of stewardship and of conservation of, of conservatism. I mean, it's literally, you know, <laughs> the clues in the words um, of the natural environment and of our ability to dwell within it. You know, to have our home within it. He, 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 as you probably know spoke about oikophilia, the love of home, uh, is, is inherent in his vision of conservatism. And yeah, I, again, I, it's worth saying, I think, oh, I don't think I know, you know there, are, there are thinkers on the left who would agree with that. They might put it differently and, and stress it differently. I mean, one of uh, Roger's great friends was uh, Morris Glassman, Lord Glassman, definitely a thinker on the left, uh, but you know, I think we, 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 you know, would, would recognise a lot of that language. And, and certainly... Uh, stewardship, as you obviously realise, was a very important theme running through the report. Um, 
and I think it's worth at this point to just to sort of bear credit to the other commissioners and to our advisors because genuinely the process of creating the report I'd never actually chaired a big commission report before you know and it's about finding consensus and finding things that everyone can agree to and it can be quite difficult at times and quite certainly quite slow uh, but that process of finding consensus actually when it works and I think it did work on that report um, genuinely leads you to a better place than you started at certainly you know, if you put me in a room for a year and asked me to write a report I could never have I think even me and Roger on our own could, could never have written that report. It did need the hundreds, if not thousands, of conversations and the roundtables and all the streams that fed in. Because we didn't pay attention to all of them. Some we ignored, some we rejected, some we thought were not worthy of putting the report. But nevertheless, they coalesced and added, and some we very much did take. And certainly, you know, uh, uh, Gail Mayhew, uh, Mary Parsons, and Adrian Penfold, uh, amongst our fellow commissioners, really pushed that concept of stewardship. And I'm, I'm very pleased that they did. Yeah, I think what, or what I was, the point I was going to make was that the, what's important is that it, it really isn't a political issue, uh, building beautiful, building better. I think it's... Uh, well, it is for some. It, 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 I, think, I think it is for yeah. some. I, I don't think it needs to be partisan. Um, people do make it partisan sometimes, I mean, but, it, it, but it shouldn't be. I mean, it, you know, where we live and how we live is political in a way, so it has to be yeah, political, yes. but it, I don't... So my my our experience and my view, so our experience at Create Streets, is that you can get a pretty broad consensus from the centre right to the centre left, probably a bit further, frankly, in both directions. Um, you know, essentially for what we're advocating for. I mean, I think uh, there will be people who are pure free marketeers, and maybe people who don't really want to take account of the negative externalities of overuse of cars in towns and cities. I think they're going to struggle with some of what we say. And I think others who are very, very um, pathologically committed modernists or who are totally focused on the importance, and I think it's a very important subject, of maximising social housing, people who are sort of, you know, so I think the, so some of the sort of extremes on, it, on, on both ends, I think, will struggle with this, but that doesn't really exclude 80 90% of the British, or indeed, I suspect, of people in any country. And... Yeah, just to reiterate what you said is that to find some kind of consensus takes a lot of work. It requires these many years of of developing the report and then you can move the conversation forward and that's good for everybody. I hope so. Um, I hope so. Um, And I think, you know, that concept of stewardship uh, forces us to think about sustainability in the round. And I think one of the dangers of what Steve Moosen, an American writer, has called Gizmo Green is that we think of sustainability purely in terms of the energy use of buildings and think that there's a technological fix to every problem. And there are technological fixes to some problems, uh, and they're hugely to be welcomed. Um, but unless we're thinking about sustainability in terms of the longevity and resilience of buildings and places, the way we move around, the way we interact, unless we're thinking in those terms, we really are missing half the point. And one of the points that uh, Roger made very powerfully, and I hope I've managed to effectively echo Um, perhaps take a little bit further in a couple of places is the idea that if we create beautiful places and buildings they will be inherently more resilient because we will will them second uses third uses when their first use comes to an end and you know uh, one thing we all know is that any use of a building or nearly any use of a building is 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 unlikely to be immortal Um, and that if a place and a building is inherently good and beautiful and attractive and worthy of love Mm -hmm. Um, then on the whole, not always clearly, uh, society is more likely to find second or third uses for it. And the example I think we gave in the report is a um, 
uh, is a, uh, a barn in Wiltshire, uh, which is now about 800 years old and has just been converted into a modern art gallery. And we then contrasted it with us a recently constructed agricultural shed, uh, which I think we can confidently assert is not going to last 800 years. If you know, I'd be unlikely to last 80, it may not even last 18, frankly, just to keep that eight theme going. Um, you know, so true resilience and sustainability is is thinking is, is about building for the long term, uh, rather than just uh, sticking on a bit of uh, uh, you know uh, a bit of improved uh, heating technology. Yeah, you talked a lot about in the report about that long term thinking uh, one of the definitions you had about stewardship was like in- incentivizing responsibility in the future and so how do you how do you actually do that though in uh, in practice because uh, i think it's common for developers and um, even even consumers uh, and even governments to to think about short, their short-term interests and then so they they build I guess maybe I can just bring it down to reality to Japan. Um, in Japan today, there's a lot of uh, construction and then destruction, and then this cycle continues over and over again, where they use cheap materials because it's cheap. Um, these materials aren't very beautiful, and um, it's it serves its purpose by whoever commissioned the building. Maybe it was for um, maybe it was for a house. Or maybe it was um, like a restaurant that just had a five-year life and then they just tear it all down because it's easy to do to do so. And then they build something else because it's cheap to do so. So how, how do you either legislate or you create some kind of social norm or, or how do you try to well, I mean, tap into people's incentives so they, they act with a long-term view. So I mean, I'm going to, I'm not sure if I'm challenging your question or just revealing my own ignorance or maybe a bit of both. Um, my understanding, and I'm happy to be corrected by you on this, is that you know one of the reasons that the building environment in Japan uh, hasn't focused on the medium or long-term is because of your climate and the risk of earthquakes um, that uh, largely wooden buildings, so it's just been expected that they'll... Um, you know, only last so long and then and then be replaced. But above all, as, as I understand it, and please please correct me on this, be sort of um, replaced in situ as the same building. There's that famous uh, Buddhist temple, isn't there, in Kyoto that you were talking about? Is it Do- Doji? I can't quite remember how you say it. There's a famous, very ancient temple in Kyoto, which I think was built in the ninth century, and it's said to be of the ninth century because all the wood has been replaced because it. You know, uh, um, so yeah. You know, yes. Yes. Yeah, they have a very strong philosophy of maintaining form, but. Uh, it can be reconstructed using new materials, yes. Uh, so, you know, I think that's quite an interesting philosophical discussion. Is that an old temple or is it a modern temple? Of course, it's it's both, really. Um, and, you know, one of the things that most defines places, just to come back to where our conversation started, is materials. I mean, it's something we see incredibly clearly when we uh, survey people on how they want new buildings or developments to be created. We, sh- we find that people in Britain, at any rate, even people who are not overtly that in, you know, interested in architecture are incredibly sensitive and aware of, certainly visually, maybe not verbally, of what their local building material is. So, you know, you go and ask people in Sussex or Surrey what buildings they want to see and they want it in red brick. You go to Yorkshire and they want it in Yorkstone. And, and I don't suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect that many of the people we're getting those responses from, I'm not sure they could spontaneously have told you that, but once they see the images, they know exactly what they want. Um, so I don't know what people in Japan want, but if if you're uh, 
natural building material in Japan is wood, that well, that doesn't last as long. So it is going to have to be replaced. By the way, the same is true of, of stone building. So, um, you know, Westminster Abbey uh, in central London, uh, which was first built uh, by Edward the Confessor in the 11th century. It was then largely rebuilt in the uh, Middle Middle Ages. And I'm embarrassing, I can't remember if it was Henry III or Henry II. I think it was Henry III, it was Henry III who largely rebuilt it. Um, and then a lot of it was refaced by stone in the 19th century and more has been restored quite recently. So some of the stone you see today on Westminster Abbey is 19th or 20th century. Does that make it a 19th or 20th century building? You know, question mark. I mean, we could, have a, we could spend a whole hour discussing that. Let's not, let's not do that. But, but to come back to your question, um, I think you uh, incentivize uh, a long-term approach to planning and development uh, by... At the, at the very, I mean, this is what we said in the report, uh, you know, at the very least, uh, not creating regulatory, I mean, there's a, there's a cultural answer to that, but I think there's a, uh, if you like, a policy answer to it as well, which is you're not creating regulatory or fiscal eye tax incentives and levers that encourage the short-term approach. And there's always going to be a danger of the short-term approach because, you know, the short-term is immediate and you make your money and you make your killing and you move on. Um, we, certainly in the UK, uh, how I think have amplified that danger over the last couple of generations. So I won't, let's not get into the detail, but um, uh, various elements in the British tax system have essentially encouraged landowners to stop developing. It is in their fiscal interest to, rather than develop land themselves, to basically sell it on to a house builder. And the house builder pays a lot of money for it because it's land possibly with or is likely to get planning permission. So he or she then needs to then return their capital quite quickly. So people who already own land, we're disincentivizing from development. And then if you don't build enough homes, the hope value, the land value gets higher and higher. And again, that means that the cost of capital and the, and the hole it's build it burning in your pocket if you're buying land to develop gets greater and greater. So by having not enough homes, and in the UK, by having an over-concentration of development in a few areas, essentially we just make it harder for people who are happy to take their returns more slowly. And we're certainly making it harder for existing landowners. So, so you know, the, the policy bit of our answer was obviously about was that type of stuff. Um, I think there is then a a wider cultural answer, um, and I won't try and summarise what we said in the report, but we did stress that in architectural and planning and surveyor education, uh, we did need to rediscover a value of place and a value of stewardship for the future. And that, and but so I think there's a cultural answer, and I think there's also a a policy answer when the government comes in as the British government and many other governments do, intervene directly in the land market or the property market, which is something governments tend to do, um, it should be bluntly biased in favour of stewardship child development. It should not be incentivising the short term. At the very least, it should be neutral. And ideally, it would have a slight bias in favour of the long term. And again, as a, as a statement of fact, some of the interventions that the English government was making, is making, don't do that. I think it, that is definitely now getting better. There's a large agency in the UK called Homes England, uh, its policy a few years ago, in my view, was very, very silly. Um, it's now definitely and very clearly uh, under the chairmanship of Peter Freeman moving in the right direction with more focus on stewardship. So that, that is, that's to be welcomed. So that's probably a more tedious and technocratic answer than you were looking for. If Roger was still with us, he would have given a much more eloquent answer to that, I feel. But, uh... <laughs> well, I want to, I'll touch on that, the cultural side um, of that answer. So one example I have is I did a podcast I don't know, three, three episodes ago about this incredible architect named um, Yoshihiro Takeshita. And his specialty is to take abandoned homes in Japan that are in the countryside 
and they're usually very old homes. And sometimes these homes are in such a dilapidated condition that all he's able to salvage is the frame, the frame of like these old um, trees that might be 300 years old and they're massive beams. And he, he takes it on his truck, takes it to his warehouse where he restores them. And then he puts up the frame as it was originally, but then he builds on top of it, incorporating Japanese traditional and then also more modern style to make it livable and and comfortable to live in. And so I think that's a good example of that conversation we had about the temple in Japan, where yes, the wood is new. Like there's most of the materials are new, but the, the form is the same. And uh, so he does the same thing, and his work is unbelievable. What's, what, and, what's his name again? Sorry, I missed his name. So said it again. It is oh, Yoshihiro. Thank you, Takishita. I can also send him uh, your inf- uh, your in- his info to you later. That'd be lovely. Um, but then there's the other kind of construction in Japan, which I think is more common, and it's done usually by large developers, and they they don't take this approach where they don't um, they don't build the traditional form. They don't preserve that concept. Instead, they just destroy the house completely and then they build something that's modern. Um, and they do this over and over again. So, you know, houses, they might have just have a couple of years of life in them, which is a shame and, and quite a waste, um, ecologically speaking. Um, so my question is about... I think it's an impossible question, but I'm oh, just yeah. interested in having <laughs> that. Your... So you'll probably get a bad answer, I'm afraid. I'll yeah, do my no, best, though. Have... Yes. Which is... So there's these two types of models that I just laid out. Um, and my question is about, do you think that possibly like the landscape of the Japanese city today is simply an expression of the free market where just the most efficient method wins. And then that's my question is like, is it just a matter of bad taste? And if so, how do we cultivate good taste among citizens so that they demand that we have beautiful, that we build more beautifully? So I, I don't think I can answer that for Japan because I just don't yeah. know. And I, I'm certainly... Yeah, I think I think maybe we should yeah keep it for in your, in your realm of expertise. I think it is dangerous to, to go from... It's country to country. I, I can answer generically, and to some degree, I can answer for the UK, and I, I could probably speak yes. a little bit to some other countries, but I, I certainly can't for Japan. So I'm, I'm not going to comment on Japan. I, I just, I just, don't, I can't answer. I don't know. Um, more, more generically, I would say, uh, I, I wouldn't use, I think, instinctively uh, phrases such as good or bad taste. Um, my view, based on the polling and the pricing data that I've seen and some of the research that we have done, is that. Uh, most people just instinctively know where they want to be, uh, and that you know uh, uh, this is something that annoys some uh, architectural commentators. But in a way, you can see that most perfectly and perhaps a little bit scurrilously uh, demonstrated in the success of places like Disneyland and, and you know, Main Street that uh, Walt Disney created, which is a sort of it's obviously a it's a bad taste in inverted commas version of, uh, of traditional American high street. You know, notably, it's walkable finely textured it's got human scale enclosure it's a sort of pantomime version of everything that most people love um two, so i think two, two two levels of answer one i think um we need to get rid of elements 
in public policy, whether that's tax or regulatory, that incentivize doing the wrong thing. That we should certainly do. That's part of my answer to your question. Then when it comes to uh, to culture, I think you need to re-empower people to, not to care, because I think they naturally care, but to have confidence that their care is legitimate and matters and is worthy of respect and worthy of being heard. So one of the most consistent and most moving things that I heard, I think that we as commissioners heard uh, when we were doing the work on that report, is you know, quite a lot of people got in touch with us spontaneously. Somewhere in my desk, I've got the file of it all. I haven't seen it for a while. I hope I haven't lost it. But one of the most consistent things we heard uh, from members of the public was actually essentially saying, listen, thank you for doing this. Uh, I feel now empowered to say that this new development doesn't make me happy. I don't like the look of it. It makes it doesn't feel like it's from here. I didn't feel I could say that before. Uh, now, clearly, we need to create new homes and places, so there's a, you know, that, that, that's a double-edged sword to that. But... Um, uh, so I think giving people confidence in their own judgment and that it matters. So I think if there's a if there's a if there's a concept I'd like to slay and take a sword to, it's this um, this uh, conceptual crime that good taste is subjective and that beauty is subjective and that where people want to be is purely a matter of personal judgment. I think that's just provably nonsense. Um, and I think as as we're better able to gather data as to where people like where they want to be, that's that's clearly now happening. It'll be come much quicker and easier and yes cheaper for groups of people living in a place collectively spontaneously almost to crowdsource that they're not happy with what's proposed and to perhaps suggest something better um so i think that's now happening i mean we've got our own online platform the great communities platform there are other ones available uh generative uh ai is now starting to make it much easier to create alternative views even without getting into any expenditure um so i think it's empowering rather than teaching good taste. I think good, you know, a human reaction to place, I think, is instinctive. Um, I think there is then a perhaps a more difficult question, certainly a harder and slower question to solve, then about the ability of the professions to respond to that. So we certainly find in Create Streets that it's quite hard to find some of the professional needs that we need to respond to people's preferences for street or building design. I mean, there are people out there who can do it, but they're quite quite finite. Um, so I think there is then that, if you like, there's a professional side to it, to that challenge. Um, but I wouldn't, I don't think we need to be in the space of teaching the public good, good taste. I think public will have the taste they will have that will respond to their instinctive stimuli as humans and to their experience of how and where they live. Um, so I'm, I'm, hugely confident in the ability of people to argue for good places but we do need to empower them to do it perhaps if i just want one perhaps thing that's a little bit more problematic i think is perhaps less so in japan actually if i understand correctly certainly problematic in this country is the relationship between cars and places uh cars at one level are marvelous things they're liberating they're empowering they give to you and me and you know normal people um, the ability to move around the countryside and the country and the suburbs with a liberty, with a freedom, with a expanse of possibilities that you just didn't have even in the age of the train. Um, those are good things. That is empowering and liberating. It's particularly powerful and empowering for people who may have mobility challenges. So it's, it's a liberty creator. But clearly it's the denser the place becomes, the greater the negative consequences and the externalities of cars on other people and other users of the road and indeed on the quality of the place. Um, and I think where you've got, as is true, certainly in the UK, outside London and Manchester, or I should say central London and central Manchester and a few other places, when you've got people who are quite reasonably car dependent, they can't get around without a car, or at least not, not much, 
um, then moving along that journey to a place which doesn't ban cars, but where you don't need to use a car for every single use in your daily life. It's a bit tighter, more public transport, easier to walk or cycle, whatever it might be, depending on where it is. That then is a slightly, I think, is a harder route because quite reasonably, people won't want to abandon their liberty to move around just like that. The, the trust won't be there in the future. So I think that's a, perhaps a, a more difficult version of the of the same question. I think it's a great place um, to end. I have just one last thing to say, which is, I think the fact that you, the way you answered the last question, which is like, I can't speak for Japan, is the perfect answer, actually, because it kind of goes to your idea of um, you have to empower the local people. Like they, they know what they want, but, but yet we have to empower them to let them decide. Yeah. And if they, um, you know, what, if they like really simple buildings, which have no decoration on them, then that that's what they should have. Yeah. And that's something that's in your report actually, which is to bring the democracy forward. So for everyone who's interested in the report, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes so people can, can learn about you. it and read about it. A shout out where people could learn more about you and the work that you do. And um, also, also, also your book, which I think just recently yes, yes. came out. In by, by lots, by lots of copies. Um, listen, Jared, thank you very, very much for asking me to speak to you. It's been a, it has been an unmitigated, uh, mitigated, an, an, an adulterated uh, pleasure. So it's been really nice meeting you and enjoying the delights of uh, you know global satellite empowered uh, uh, connectivity. You know what a joy the technology is. Um, thank you. Uh, so yes, anyone who's interested in what I've had to say. Easiest place go to go to our website www.createstreets.com. There's also a separate website website uh, for the Create Streets Foundation, which you can reach from there. Um, you'll see um, we have a YouTube page. Um, there's a one video there which, in about ten minutes, tries to summarise our research. So if you want to sort of encapsulate it in ten minutes, there's that. Um, there are th- uh, three books I and my colleagues have written trying to summarise the research on the relationships between place, health prosperity, value, and uh, popularity. Uh, They're called Heart in the Right Street, Beyond Location, and of Streets and Squares. Uh, That third one of Streets and Squares, you can download an e-version for free. Uh, The others, I'm afraid you have to buy an e-version or or, or order a paper copy, but it's not not too bank-breaking. And yes, and My History of London, uh, No Free Parking, uh, now available in paperback. You know, you don't, don't just buy one; buy ten. You can use it. You know, use it for wallpaper. You can use it to prop up your streets. And to, you know, no, I'll stop there. Um, but uh, but thank you. And um, and if anyone, any, if any of your audience are interested, please obviously do do get in touch. Mm-hmm.